Open in your Bible to the book of Revelation tonight, and if you need a Bible, just just raise your hand. And we're in chapter 20. And I will say just one more thing as we start off tonight, and that is that if you're here in this study of Revelation for the first time, either last, not last week, but, you know, two weeks ago or tonight, I just want to say, bear with me, because, you know, after the study that we had two weeks ago when we did the first half of chapter 20, I I just left here thinking, man, if there was anybody here tonight that's here for the first time, they're never coming back, you know, because it's, it just seemed to me to be so technical and it's so full of information, kind of things that really don't apply much to the here and now, but are very insightful concerning things to come, you know, and all. And tonight is really the continuation of that. So if this is your first time here, come back, you know, don't say, oh, this is way too much. I can't handle it, you know, Uh, with that, Revelation chapter 20, and we'll be picking up in verse 7 and hopefully finishing the chapter tonight. Now. In chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, we saw what happens during the final years of life as we know it, the final seven years of life as we know it here on planet Earth. It's a time of unparalleled destruction and judgment when God will pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. And it's described very acutely it's given to us in great detail what's going to happen during those last seven years and that seven-year period of time culminates with the return of jesus christ the battle of armageddon will be in its you know greatest swing at that time and jesus will come back he'll set his feet down upon the mount of olives he'll put an end to that war with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth The blood will flow, it tells us, to the horse's bridle, and he will return. And we talk a lot about the second coming of Christ, and we hope for the second coming of Christ, and we're looking towards the second coming of Christ. But what we're looking at here in chapter 20 is what happens after the second coming of Christ. You know, we kind of in our mind think that, well, that's kind of the period at the end of the sentence. Jesus comes back and then we live happily ever after. Yes, that's true. But the Bible gives us information and details as to what's going to happen after that time. It isn't just like that fairy tale ending that you watch in kind of a Disney type of movie where, you know, Prince Charming comes and grabs the bride and it's all done and the credits roll, you know. So what happens when Jesus Christ returns? Five things that we're looking at here in chapter 20. The first three we looked at last time, which are, first of all, that the first thing that will happen after Jesus returns and ends the battle is that Satan will be taken, chained, and bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit or the abuso where he will have absolutely no effect upon humanity or on the course of God's kingdom moving forward from that point. For 1,000 years, Satan will be taken and Satan will be bound. We saw that in our last study. Second of all, that Jesus himself will initiate or kick off a period of time known biblically as the millennial reign of Christ or the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. Other 
of the Old Testament prophets and other scriptures have called it the day of the Lord. And we talked about that, how a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years, and how there have been essentially six days, 6,000 years of human history from Adam until just about where we are right now. And, And that where we stand in relation to end times events and biblical prophecy is that we're right on the cusp of that Sabbath day where the earth will rest for a thousand years, that thousand year reign of Christ that will come. And I would encourage you to, if you didn't, weren't here for that, to maybe read Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11 and then again in chapter 66 as Isaiah describes what the world will be like during that time, during the millennium, that thousand years where there's peace and prosperity and the world is all set right the way that it should be. So Satan is bound, the millennium is begun, and then third, there will be the judgment of nations. That right when Jesus returns, there will be a 45-day period of time where he will take and he will judge those people that survived the tribulation that didn't take the mark of the beast. There will be those that survived the tribulation. It might be five people, but there will be at least a few that survived the tribulation that because of maybe some semblance of faith that they may have had or for some reason didn't take the mark of the beast and they will stand before Jesus during that time and he will separate them as, the sh- as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will do that based upon how they treated and dealt with his people, his brothers, the Jews, during the tribulation. And the sheep, he will say, come ye and inherit this kingdom that's been prepared for you. But to the goats, he will say, depart ye into everlasting darkness and they will not be allowed in. But the sheep, those that stand in that judgment, will be allowed to go into the millennial reign, the thousand-year period of, uh, of time where Jesus rules and reigns upon the earth. They will be, as we talked about, in human flesh. You and I will no longer be. At the time of the rapture, you and I are glorified. We are given new bodies. We are, Jesus described it, that we are like the angels that we no longer are married or are given in marriage, we no longer reproduce or have children, we're completely made new. This corruption puts on incorruption. This mortal puts on immortality and all things are made new concerning us. But those that go into the millennium, they'll go in in human flesh. And for a thousand years, they will reproduce and repopulate the earth. Longevity of life will be restored as it was in the days of Adam where man lived for 900, 1,000 years. People will live from start to finish of the millennium and the earth will repopulate very quickly this period of time, this millennium that's there that we will see. The sheep will go in, the goats will not. And so we saw those three things. Satan was bound, the millennium is begun, And the judgment of nations takes place where those that will go in, go in, and those that will depart, depart. Well, what happens after the millennium? And that's where we pick up as we look at verse 7 through the end of the chapter. What happens after this 1,000-year period of time where Jesus Christ rules and reigns upon the earth? 
if I could ask you to look with me at verse 7, he says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed or surrounded the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, how many of you believe that people by and large are a byproduct of their environment? I know that many of you, especially in this church, have worked with or have close ties to the prison system. And seeing the people and hearing their stories, those that, you know, are in prison, you know, for for various things that they have done. You know, you listen to their stories and you find out that many of those people, they were brought up in a single parent home or maybe a a zero parent home or in foster care and something where they never had parental guidance growing up. They were brought up in a rough neighborhood, and their school was the streets. And the way that they learned to operate in life was by the rule of, you know, street life and all the rest. And, and, and as you listen to their stories and you see their situations, you begin to realize or think to yourself that that person never had a chance. It's almost as though they were destined for this end, to be locked up in prison, just because of the circumstances that they were born into. And we can relate to that. We understand that people are a byproduct of their environment, of where they're brought up. This world is broken. The world has fallen. Everything in this world, the Bible says, is upside down. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The very makeup of man is upside down. We were created spirit, soul, and body to relate to God in the spirit which would satisfy the soul, which would make a satisfied flesh. But it was turned upside down, and now man, miserable in his flesh, seeks to satisfy his soul by filling it with anything that he can, any experience, any pleasure, anything to try to bring back this mystical deja vu of a fellowship that man once had with God in the spirit. And it's all broken, it's twisted, and it's upside down. And everything that we see going on in the world today, and all of the wretchedness of it, is because of the environment that it is. Now, during the millennium, during that thousand years when Jesus Christ is king, where he is in charge, where he is ruling, where righteousness is the way that man operates by, where peace is the the, the environment where the lion lays down with the lamb and the, the, you know, the, the bear will eat straw like the ox and all of these conditions that are described where things are set right the way they should be. Well, during the millennium, people will also be a byproduct of their environment. You see, now, in this saturated or sin-saturated environment that we're in right now, Temptation is rampant and therefore sin is experienced and and we understand that. We're just exposed to sin in, in such a great degree. That's the environment that we live in. It's saturated in sin and temptation with very little gospel exposure. I mean, if you think about the grand scheme of the whole world and you were to put all of the 
the darkness on one side and then all of the light on the other, the darkness would so far outweigh the light that it's incomparable, it's inexpressible, the conditions on earth. Well, in the millennium, it will be the exact opposite. All of the light, all of the glory of who Christ is in the world as it was made to be in its you know, inception at the beginning, all of that will so far outweigh the wickedness that it will, be, it will just be a complete opposite of what we have now. And the result of that will be that people will again be the, 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 you know, the outcome of their environment. That's what they will be. It will be like a worldwide Bible belt. Everybody will speak Christianese. All you'll hear is praise the Lord, praise the Lord, hallelujah, hallelujah, bless God, praise Jesus. You know, that's all you're going to hear. That's going to be the language of the day. As often as you hear curse words and, you know, foul language now, you'll hear Christian words and spiritual jargon then. It's going to be the flip-flop of what it is. Now, in that, there's a problem. Because there's coming a day when everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When everyone will give an account for the things that they did in the body, the choices that they made, the decisions that they made during their life, and even those decisions that affect where they will spend eternity. And a jailbird will stand before God at the great white throne, and all of his works will be laid before him, and it will be clearly evident that his works, though they are dark, they are, in fact, the byproduct of his environment. He never had a chance. And then there will be one who lived during the millennium where there was no ghetto. There was no rough street life. You know, there was none of that. And that person will also be judged there. And the jailbird would rightly look across at the one who lived during the millennium and say, well, that's really kind of not fair. If I had lived during the millennium, then I would have made those right choices too. I would have chosen Christ too if I had lived in that time when Christ was was there upon the earth. What's the deal? Now, in order that God is just, and the Bible declares that God is perfectly just, totally fair, everybody, whether they lived during the first 6,000 years of darkness where Satan ruled and reigned as the prince of the power of the air, or whether they live in the millennial reign of Christ where light is the rule of righteousness, everyone must have the same choice. The same choice that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden, the same choice that's given to the jailbird or to the pew potato here and now, will be the same choice that those that live during the millennium will also have. Because although for a thousand years Satan will be bound and unable to affect the heart of mankind with his debauchery and his temptation, the Bible declares that at the end of the millennial reign, he must be loosed for a short season. In verse 7, it says that Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. But if you look back at verse 3, it says he's bound for a thousand years and he's cast into the bottomless pit until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And then it says after that, he must be loosed a little season. And the reason why he must be loosed for a little season is because everybody has to have a choice. Adam was given a choice. There was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there was the tree of life. He could choose to which he would come to receive 
that which God had provided. God told him what would be the outcome of his choice. And in full knowledge, Adam took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he partook of it being deceived by Satan. He made his choice. You and I have a choice. The tree of life, Jesus Christ, pleads to us, and he says, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He bids us to come to the cross and lay down our sin before him and and be saved and be rescued from the power of darkness. But he doesn't force that move upon any of us. He gives us the choice to make whether or not we will come or whether or not we will live according to the lusts of our life, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. We have a choice. And in the millennium, Satan will be let loose at the end. And every man, woman, and child, even that lived through that time of peace and prosperity, will be given a chance whether or not they will love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and strength. Or whether they will serve themselves and follow themselves and give in to the dictates and the desires of their flesh and fall away after Satan. The amazing thing to me is that even after a thousand years of living in the world as it should be, it says that an innumerable multitude, a number of whom is as the sand of the sea, according to verse 8, falls away after the guiles of Satan. And all that tells me is, it doesn't to me speak of the craftiness of Satan, but it talks of the vileness of our flesh. Paul said, in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. It's amazing how selfish we are that even in the very good things that we do, there are selfish motives attached. And and, and listen, it takes revelation of God sometimes to see it. It's so subtle. But this flesh is condemned. Paul said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? He saw himself clearly and he said, it's just, it's like I'm carrying around a corpse and the putrefying wretched smell of it is with me constantly. He said, I praise God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory, who makes us more than conquerors, who saves us by his grace and not according to our works. But a multitude will fall away during that time, during the millennium. And it says that in verse 8, that he shall go out and he'll deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now, in Ezekiel's prophecy in chapter 38, and, and it's a prophecy I'm sure that many of you, at least if you're well-versed in, in, in Bible prophecy and in, in Old Testament scripture, that you're aware of Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. The battle of Magog when, you know, it, it talks of the tr- chief prince of Rosh, speaking of Russia, and Meshach and Tubal, the cities of Russia, Moscow and Tobolsk, and, and, and it talks about this in, this confederation of nations that will ally themselves against Israel and seek to wipe them out, that they will surround this little nation of Israel that's been brought back into their land in the last days, and they will seek to put them out like a candle in one swift storm. And there are some that try to say that that battle doesn't take place until the end of the millennium, that this verse here, verse 8 of chapter 20, is referring to that battle there in Ezekiel chapter 38. Well, it it sounds, there are some similarities, but it is distinct, it is different, it is not the same thing. 
And we don't have time tonight to explore all of the reasons why, but I'll just give it to you, you know, very plainly that that battle is very clearly speaking that it is a, a thing that happens immediately after Israel is regathered in their land in the last days before the millennial or return of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, if you read through chapter 38 and 39, you'll discover that the weapons that are recovered after God intervenes in that battle are used as fuel for a period of at least seven years. So we know that when that battle happens, there are at least seven years left, which this here, there is not. This is the end of the millennium, and we're going to move on into chapter 21. We're going to see the new Jerusalem, and we move on into the new heavens and the new earth. Praise God, you know. But it speaks of the principalities, the powers of darkness, the rebellious spirits that can influence the cultures of man. And that they will be gathered together at the end of the millennium and there will be a temptation of rebellion against God. And there will be many that join into it and that are overthrown. It says that they went up in verse 9 on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So it's again a very quick and swift judgment of God where the earth is purged. And if you're taking notes on the five things that will happen, number four is the purging of the earth. The purging of the earth at the end of the millennium. And then in verse 10 now, everything is culminated. Everything is wrapped up as it concerns this earth that was created in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It tells us in verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. Notice that, that it says are. It doesn't say were or where they were cast, but it says that that's where they are presently and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now keep in mind, when were the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire? At the end of the tribulation, when Jesus came back and ended the battle of Armageddon, it was then that they were thrown in. This is a thousand years later. And listen, it says that they're still there. They're still alive. They're still conscious. They're still aware. They're still being tormented. And it says that that's where they will be day and night forever and ever. For those that say hell or Gehenna is just a place where the garbage is burned and destroyed and is no more. Not so. A human soul can never be destroyed. As we'll see here and later on in our study, you're aware always of where you are and what happened, and you're able to experience pain and torment consciously. But it talks here of this lake of fire. Now, throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, we consistently, we read the word hell. You know, we understand hell. You know, Jesus spoke very often of hell. He talked about it uh, not infrequently, and so did the apostles. And, you know, we read of it throughout Scripture, this thing of hell. But this that we read of here in chapter 20, verse 10, this lake of fire is different. It's not the same thing. The word that's translated hell throughout the rest of the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's a word in the Hebrew, sheol. 
And in the New Testament, in the Greek, it's the word Hades. And you, you know, you probably heard those terms or seen them in the margins of your Bible, Sheol or Hades. And that translates into hell. However, this lake of fire that's being spoken of here in verse 10, it's a totally different word. It's Gehenna. And it's really the final place. Well, what's the deal with this division? What's the difference between Hades or Sheol or hell and the lake of fire or Gehenna? What's the difference between these two things? Now, in in our modern judicial system in the United States of America, we have what you would first of all call the county jail or the city jail or central booking. And essentially, when someone is caught in a crime or they are incarcerated for misdeeds, you know, they're brought in and they are cuffed and fingerprinted and they are kept in the county jail or in the city jail or in central booking in this place where they are in prison, but they are awaiting the time of their trial where they will be sentenced, whether they will be, you know, set free or whether they will be then brought to the second part of our judicial prison system, which is the state penitentiary, where you will serve your sentence. So essentially, you have the county jail where you're awaiting trial, and then you have state penitentiary where you will serve your sentence after you've been tried. And it's kind of a similar concept that we have here in the Bible in this Sheol Hades versus Gehenna or the Lake of Fire. One is a place of incarceration where you are awaiting trial. And the other is the place where the sentence will be served after being found guilty at the end. Well, how does this work? Jesus unlocks for us the understanding of this in Luke's gospel, chapter 16. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a very interesting story. Now, some have called this the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but this is not a parable. Wherever it's a parable, Jesus says, is this a parable, or it says that he putteth forth a parable. This is not a parable. Jesus speaks of this as an actual event. And he says that there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table... Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So a sad situation for this man, Lazarus. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, or Hades, he lifted up his eyes and being in torments, He seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. 
Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he also may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, notice in this parable, or in this story, sorry, not parable, but in this account that Jesus gives concerning these two men and what happens to them after they die, that the grave is separated into two compartments. And listen, if you're taking notes, prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Hades, or hell, was divided into two separate sections. On the one hand, there was torment, where this rich man was carried. And on the other side was comfort, called Abraham's bosom. Other places it's called paradise, where the person is comforted. Now notice that in both places, the people are perfectly conscious and aware of where they are. In torment, this rich man, not only is he aware of his own state and his own suffering, his own torment, but somehow he is able to see a cross into the place where this man Lazarus is being comforted in the glory of Abraham's bosom. And also somehow there's a way wherein there's communication that can cross this gulf that cannot be crossed physically or spiritually. Interesting, isn't it? Now, what's the deal with this? These two sections of Hades, if you would. Remember at the cross, Jesus said to the one thief that professed faith in him, he said, this day you will be with me in paradise. Remember that? It was speaking of Abraham's bosom, this place of comfort. Now, once Jesus rose from the grave, that changed. How so? The torment side of Hades, or hell, remains the same. The place where the unrighteous dead are held, awaiting their time of trial. They are still there, that even to this day, while we sit here, the same rich man that Jesus speaks of in the story is still in torment, in that place there in Hades, in hell, awaiting. But concerning Abraham's bosom, or paradise, something changed. Something happened. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul lets us in on something. He says that when Jesus ascended up on high, when Jesus arose from the dead and then ascended into heaven, it says that he led captivity captive. If you have a newer translation, it says that he led a multitude of captives. It means that those that had previously been bound, at least in some capacity, are now set free. That when he ascended up on high, he led free a multitude of captives. And then he goes on, of course, and he says that, you know, in verse 8, wherefore he saith, uh, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? So, so what's the deal? What's all this mean? What is this saying? What's the deal with, you know, Sheol and Abraham's bosom and paradise and, and heaven? What's the deal? How does all this flesh out what does it mean here's how it happens 
First of all, understand this and hang with me here. I'm just going to cruise you through this hallway of, you know, Hades and you'll understand this. First of all, salvation is always, whether you're talking about Adam, Abraham, David, Daniel, Peter, Paul, or you and I. Salvation is always only by faith in Jesus Christ. There is no one that will be saved, that will be in heaven, that's been redeemed because of anything other than faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be saved. It's incredible. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have life, but they are they which testify of me. And to the Bible student, it becomes very clear that as you read through, you see Jesus all throughout the scriptures. To Abraham, Jesus said, offer your son on a mountain that I'm going to tell you about. And Abraham went through the motions, bringing his son, putting the wood on his back, having him carried up the hill, the father fastening his son to the wood, you know, the sacrifice about to be made. Abraham himself saying the words that God is going to provide himself a lamb, a perfect picture of Jesus' crucifixion. And Abraham gets it. He understands that this is what God is going to do. He believes God, and the Bible says that it's accounted unto him for righteousness. He's saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? The Old Testament characters were looking forward at what Christ would do on the cross, and we are looking backwards at what he did do on the cross, and all of eternity somehow hinges upon this one moment in time where Jesus Christ hung upon a cross and died for the sins of the world. And anyone who is saved is saved because they have faith in that act of God lovingly sacrificing his son to redeem mankind to himself. All men are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, Old Testament and New. Do we all understand that? Number two, man could not be in the presence of God until the price for sin was paid. Until the blood of God was spilled out and once for all sin was put away, not by the law, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. Until that time, man could not be in the presence of God because God is light. And until somehow man is sanctified once for all forever, he cannot be brought in. And the Bible says that Jesus is the first fruits of them that rose. Therefore... All them that died prior to the cross of Christ could not go into the presence of the Lord. They went to Abraham's bosom. They went to paradise, a place where they were comforted, that was somehow fixed side by side in the grave there, where they are awake, they are aware, they are comforted, but they are not yet in heaven. But as soon as Jesus Christ goes to the cross... As soon as the words come out of his mouth, it is finished to Telestai, and he gives up the ghost. It tells us that the veil in the temple was miraculously torn from top to bottom. In fact, Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 53 say that, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks tore. And listen to this. It says, And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept or were dead arose. 
and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. You say, whoa, what is this? I'll tell you what it is. That he that ascended, first of all, descended. And Peter tells us that he preached there to the souls in prison. And he said, it is finished. It is done. I have paid the price in full. I have made the way wherein man can be again in the presence of God. And he led, it says, captivity captives or many that were held. He led them free. And at that point, when the cross was complete, Abraham's bosom was emptied. It was no longer needed because Jesus, the first fruits, rose and went, first of all, into the presence of God and then brought us in because he purchased for us our salvation on the cross. And now... When a believer dies, they're not brought to Abraham's bosom where they're comforted, awaiting a time in the future. But Paul the Apostle tells us very clearly, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, he says that for us now to die, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That because of what Jesus did, there's no waiting period. There's no soul sleep where we await a, a resurrection at a later date. But to be absent from the body now, is to be present with the Lord because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And so Hades, or Sheol, this bi-compartmental place in the grave that held those that were dead in the Old Testament in times past, still holds them that are in torment, awaiting the time that they will go to trial. But Abraham's bosom is emptied and all that were in that place are now in the presence of the Lord in heaven where you and I, when we die or are raptured, will also be taken, ushered in to the very presence of God where we'll see him face to face. Well, you ask, well, what judgment are those that are in Hades awaiting? What are they waiting for? What's going to happen then? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because he gives us the answer back in Revelation 20, verse 11. He says, I saw then a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. Now, Most people, when they talk about Judgment Day, or when you bring up this subject of Judgment Day, this is what they are more or less kind of referring to in their thoughts. You know, that there's coming the great white throne, and everybody's going to stand before the great white throne. And, you know, even when they say things like, there's only one judge, or judge not lest you be judged, and I'll stand before the judge. And, 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 And somehow, in the mind, the picture is of this period this time this great white throne where god kind of in this role of judge puts on his robe and grabs his gavel and his big white wig you know and he's there and threatening and awesome you know in this whole deal this judgment day but it isn't quite like that it isn't really the picture see in the new testament or in the bible there are actually five different Judgments are five different events that are called judgment, and they refer to different times and different groups of people. The first judgment in the New Testament is very plainly the judgment that Jesus Christ absorbed upon the cross. The guilty verdict was dropped upon Jesus Christ as he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 
The Bible says in Isaiah that the Lord, it pleased the Lord to smite him and that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That Jesus was judged for your sin and for my sin and he was found guilty of the things that we did. When the Romans whipped him with the flagellum, the cat of nine tails, and and gave him those 39 whips, the purpose of that was for him to confess the sin that he was being brought before them for. That was a means of extracting truth from people that when they would feel their flesh being separated from their body by the things, those, those, you know, cords, that they would fess up and the more that they confessed what they did or what they were accused of, the lighter and less frequent the blows would be. And once they found that, okay, he's talked all, they would stop with the flagellum. But Jesus absorbed 39 blows and he never confessed a single sin. Do you know why? First of all, because he didn't have any. Second of all, because if he did, he would have had to confess yours and mine. Because that's what he was enduring. It was the judgment of our sin that was being laid upon him. So he would have had to talk about my selfishness, my indulgence, my wickedness, my pride. I'm so thankful that he didn't. So the first judgment was that which Christ absorbed. The second judgment the New Testament talks about is self-judgment. Paul the Apostle talking to the Corinthians chapter 11, he's speaking of the communion table. And he tells them among other things that the time that the body of Christ comes together and takes communion is that it is a time that we are to judge ourselves. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one and 32, Paul says that if we should judge ourselves then we will not be judged of the Lord. That it's a time of purifying. That something happens that when we confess sin to God, when we allow Him to search our hearts and reveal those areas of our life that are iniquitous and unpleasing to Him, that that there's something purifying about that. We're set free in a way. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That it isn't just forgiveness. We, we have forgiveness by the blood of Christ. That's a given. It's automatic. But when we confess, when we judge ourselves, we are also cleansed. The word in the Greek is catheterized. If you've ever been in the hospital for anything and you've had a catheter, you understand what that means. It's a means of removing waste. And when we confess our sins unto the Lord... Not to some priest or some person, but when we get honest with God and we confess and we judge ourselves before him and we say, Lord, this is my heart. Look at it. It's ugly. It's messed up. The Bible says that it's cleansed, that there's something that is catheterizing about that. We're set free from those things that hold us. So self-judgment, that time that we examine ourselves If we judge ourselves, we will not be judged of the Lord. The third judgment that the New Testament talks about is the Bema Seat judgment. Or what Paul would say, the judgment seat of Christ. Where the believer, where you and I will receive rewards for the things that we did in the body. He says that some will receive a reward and some will suffer loss. And we've talked about that, Revelation chapter 4. That when we stand before the Lord at the time of the rapture, We are going to be rewarded and and given crowns and, and heavenly blessings that we can't even understand. 
that are based upon what we did with the time and the resources and the energy and the truth that we had on earth, how we were stewards over what we were given. We will be rewarded for it. It's the Bema Seat, the Bema Seat judgment. That's for the believer. The fourth judgment that the New Testament speaks of is that of the sheep and the goats or the judgment of the nations that we talked about last week and earlier in our study where the sheep are allowed to go in and the goats are not. The judgment, the separating of the nations, the sheep and the goats. And then the fifth judgment that the New Testament talks about is this one here that we read of in Revelation 20, the great white throne. Now, all five of those judgments do not apply to all people. Depending on who you are and where you will spend eternity, that determines which judgments you are a part of. See, for the believer, for the person that has made Jesus their Lord, who has been born again and has given their life to Christ, the judgments for them are, first of all, the judgment of the cross. Your great white throne was a great wooden cross. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, you will never stand before God at the great white throne. You'll see that very clearly when we get into verses 12 and 13. For the believer, for you and I, our sin was judged on Calvary. So we partake of that first judgment. We also partake of self-judgment when we partake of the communion supper of the Lord. And we will also partake of the Bema Seat judgment where we are given rewards for the things that we did in the body. So those three judgments apply to us. The cross, communion, and the Bema Seat. That's for you and I if we are believers in Christ. For those that survive the tribulation, they will partake of the judgment of nations where the sheep are separated from the goats. And then either they will participate in the cross where their sins are forgiven or they will rebel and they'll go to the great white throne but that's for them and then for those that are unsaved for those that say we will not have jesus rule over us we will not follow him we're going our own way all roads lead to god we believe in a higher power but it's not jesus you know for all of those people they will appear only before the great white throne that is their judgment There is not one saved, redeemed, blood-bought person that will stand before the great white throne judgment being tried there. How do we know that? Verse 12, it says, And I saw the dead. Now the dead that he's referring to is the dead that he spoke of back in verse 5. If you glance back over to verse 5, it says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. It's speaking of the dead apart from Christ. Those that died without faith, without Christ, that chose to not give their lives to Christ. It says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And this is the worst thing. If this ever happens to you, I don't want to be there to see it. It says, and the books were opened. See, if there's a plural on the word books at your judgment, you're in trouble. And another book, that's the one you want, The book of life, and listen, it says, And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. How? According to their works. Ouch. 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. That means that you will be judged if you are at the great white throne and you stand before God in that manner, that you will be judged based upon how you lived your life. The things that you did while you were on earth, all of them will be laid out plainly there. Every word, every action, every thought, every deed, everything will be opened and you will be judged according to those things. Well, someone will say, you know what? I know that. And that is why I purposely live my life in such a way where my good outweighs my bad. Because ultimately, you know, we're, 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 nobody's perfect, right? So we'll take all the good and all the bad and we'll put them on two scales. And if the good somehow outweighs the bad, then I'm, I know I'm going to get in because, you know, I was better than that guy, you know. And so as long as I was better than that guy, and see what happens now is that you've put God in this category of man where he grades according to a curve. See, the test is so hard that no one can pass it. And so what happens is that you take the best guy, you know, Mother Teresa or, you know, someone else, some saint or something, and they get a hundred. And everybody else then is ruled according to that. And so, you know, there's a passing fail. So as long as I get over 65 or 70, I'm in. You know, that's a D minus. So my good just has to outweigh my bad. Now, listen, the problem with grading on a curve, and if you were ever, in a, you know, experienced that in school or in college or at a point where they graded on a curve, you know, that means they took the highest score and that became an A+. Plus. The problem with that is that Jesus got 100. See, so it doesn't work because... He did it. He kept the whole law perfectly, and that means that he is the standard whereby God will judge man. So therefore, unless your righteousness, your goodness, your works match the perfection of Christ, the Bible says that you fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus was very clear that the only way to attain heaven was that your works are perfect. So if you are judged according to your works, guess what? You're not going to make it. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul wrote to that young pastor and he said, it is not, listen, it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by his grace that he has saved us. Our works don't save us. Our goodness, our record, our intentions, none of that means anything. We are saved completely and only by the gift of God's grace and our faith in responding to it and believing it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you are saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not, listen, not by works, lest any man should boast. See, if salvation were by works, or if salvation in some way could be earned, then that would give man a platform for boasting. Well, look how good I was. I was better than that guy and that guy, and that guy, and I made it, I got in. But God says that no flesh will glory in his presence. And that all that stand before him will be there because they were saved by his grace. Grace is the gift of God. It's an acronym. It means God's riches at Christ's expense. And it is extended freely to all those that believe and receive it by faith. 
And to those that receive the gift of God's grace, that is that he sent his son into the world to fulfill the law perfectly and then to be the sacrifice for sin. And now all those that receive the grace that he bought with his blood on the cross, they will be saved not by anything that they have done, but only by what he accomplished, what he purchased, what he did, his righteousness. But anyone who's hoping and trusting in their works to save them. Oh, I've lit so many candles and offered this many prayers and done that many devotions. And listen, it doesn't mean anything. It's grace. It's all by grace. Your salvation is by grace. Your standing before the Father is by grace. It's nothing other than grace. Your time that you're walking through this earth, the very power to take the next breath and the next step that you have, it's all by grace. None of it is at all because of what you do or what you earn or what you deserve because all we, any of us, deserve is hell. And yet because of the grace of God, the riches of God that were manifested through Christ on the cross, We can be saved from our sin by him. Grace. Because of the grace of God, we are accepted by him. We're forgiven by him. We're saved by him. And the book of works will never be opened. And you know, I'm real glad about that because the longer I walk with the Lord, the more aware I am of just how bad I am. You know, and I know you think I'm just being cliche, but no, I'm really bad. You know, I don't think I'm like an axe murderer or anything like that, but it's just the little things. It's the things that you, you know, that you, you would never think. Like, you know, I first get saved and I quit drinking, I quit smoking pot and I quit swearing. And I was like, all right, I got it. I got this whole salvation thing. This is great. And I thought it was like, okay, well, that's it. But then all of a sudden now there's new things. Oh, wait a minute. You mean my attitudes, my work ethic? My appetite? You you mean these things can be carnal? And I remember Georgia saying to me at a certain point, she said, Nick, sin is like an onion. You peel away one layer and you just reveal another. You know, and it's true. I mean, the longer you walk with the Lord, you're like, all right, as soon as I get this layer, as soon as I get rid of this pride, I'm going to be all set. And so you get rid of the pride, and then there's just something else even darker than that waiting right there. And, and you just realize, wait, does it ever get clean? I mean, where's like the, you know, the gumball in the middle of this onion? It, you know, and it just never comes. It's just layer after layer after layer after layer. And you just realize, and after a while, you begin to really hate it. And God says, now you're starting to get the picture. But here's what happens when you really start to hate it. It changes the way you see other people, too. See, a lot of times we look across the room or we look across the table at our spouse or at someone in our family or we look across the desk at someone in the office and we hate their sin. We just can't say, and we, and we think to ourselves, you know what, yeah, they may be saved, you know, they claim this, but I can't wait to see their reaction when God brings this up. Listen, let me tell you something. If you bring that up, God might bring up your stuff. You know, because Jesus was very clear, didn't he? That he said, when you pray, say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. 
Jesus was very clear, wasn't he, when he said that if you do not forgive men their trespasses, then neither will your heavenly Father forgive you yours. And when we are blinded to the condition of our own sin, all we can see is the ugliness in others. But once we're aware of what we are, And that there's a world of iniquity bound up in the very heart that we carry around and hold so highly in such pride. Once we see what it really is, we look at others and we say, man, you know, I would be the same way in their situation. I would be even worse. And it changes the way we look at people. It changes the way, and it opens the door for actually love them with Christ's love because we realize, wow, I've been forgiven. Isn't it amazing how bad our sin looks on someone else? Right? I mean, think about it. Like, when you see someone doing something you struggle with, don't you, oh, that's terrible. You know, when you see someone struggling with something you don't struggle with, we're merciful. Like, when I see someone struggling with heroin, I'm always like, oh, God can help you. God loves you. God this. You know, when I see someone struggling with pride, I'm like, yeah, you dirtbag. (laughs) Why? Because that's my thing, you know? And we have that tendency, don't we? The grace of God is such a powerful thing. The blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all of our sin. That if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That this corruption will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. That death will be swallowed up in victory. That we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. How is this possible? The grace of God. But if you're trusting in your works, and if you think that in any way your works are going to hold any weight in the judgment of God, I'm sorry. But it says that the sea gave up the dead that were in it, death and hell, and that's Hades. Now, follow that. Understand that in verse 13, that Hades, that waiting place, that county jail, if you would, that place of torment where the rich man from Luke 16 is being held. It says that death and hell, Hades, gave up the dead, that at that time, the day of trial will come and they will stand before the great white throne. And they will be judged according to their works and listen to what happens to them in verse 14. To every person who is judged at the great white throne, it says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You will either be judged by the books of your works or by the fact of your name being written in the book of life. If your name is written in the book of life, then that means Jesus absorbed the punishment for everything that was written in the book of works, and it will not be brought up, and we won't want it to. But if you reject Jesus Christ, and you're trusted in your goodness, or in the fact of your goodness outweighing your badness, or in any other thing, then that is evidence that your name is not written in the book of life. And there's one destination for those whose names are not written. The good news is that because of the grace of God, a hope that we have as we close i want you to think two things two thoughts and then we're done number one for all that the bible speaks of hell 
And all that we read here of this place of hell, this eternal torment where the beast and the false prophet are, that forever and ever. Let me ask you a question. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that, Christian, that right now there are people that are in torment that would cry out for just a drop of water to cool the burning on their tongue? That forever and ever, I read this and I just, I looked at that and I saw those words there in verse 10, forever and ever. And I just kept reading that over and over again and and I didn't have a word and then I just whispered to myself, man, that is severe. That's severe. Do we really believe that? Because if we did, I really believe it would change the way we look at people. I really believe it would change the way that we look at our neighbors when we see them coming out of their house and struggling through life. It would change the way that we see that person that maybe gets under our skin that we don't really quite know how to deal with and don't really want to. It would change the way that we see our friends, those from our past. It would change the way we see the world if we really believed that it was there. I was having a conversation with one of my cousins while we were home there in Rochester, and, and we were just discussing kind of the frustration at the concept of this and how little that we do to, to try to avert it. And, 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 you know, I know this. I mean, I know this for all of us, that one second after the rapture, that the trumpet's going to sound, we're going to be caught up, and we're going to be changed. And one second after that, The only thing that's going to matter to us is that we're going to be thinking, well, we'll be thinking Jesus, heaven, glory, you know, yes, all of that. But somewhere in there will be, I could have done more. I know I could have done more. I don't know what exactly, but I know I could have done more. And I'm not bringing this to your attention so you can feel bad about how little you're doing. But I'm bringing it to your attention because, listen, church, if we really believe that there's a hell and that there are going to be people people that we see every day with our eyes that are going to suffer in the torment of that forever and ever, maybe, maybe if we believe it, it will cause us to pray a little bit and just say, Lord, what can I do? Because I feel so helpless. I feel like I can't do anything about it. I don't know where's the line between speaking, sharing, and shining light. Lord, I don't know what to do. But maybe if we believe it, if we see it, if we understand it, we'll say, Lord, what can I do? I don't want to just sit here and watch that happen and then have regret in that day knowing that I could have done more. But at the same time, Lord, I don't want to do it in my flesh. So direct me. Help me. Give me a burden. Help me to see these things clearly. I pray that God gives us that, that we would be people of understanding, that we would know that. And number two, as we close, one more final thought on this incredible grace, this incredible grace this gift that we have as christians i think and i I think on a wednesday night the majority of us here that we're saved we know the lord and we understand the grace of god as it concerns our salvation you know yeah we're going to heaven he's bought us and you know in this thing but for many of us the depths of God's grace kind of stop right there. We think, well, the grace of God is for the future. You know, that's for like, you know, heaven and getting in. That's kind of our ticket for when the showtime begins. And I've got my grace ticket there and it's ready to go. And, and that's grace to us. But listen, church, grace is so much more. It's so much more than just our entrance into heaven. Grace is the very fuel for our lives. 
we started going through Joshua with our kids, you know, on a nighttime before they go to bed, you know, and we're reading through and, and I was reading to them the account of Joshua right when they cross in and they're about to go to battle at Jericho. And God has established that Joshua's the leader. The eyes of the whole nation are on him. Everything is on him. Literally, the weight of the nation is on the shoulders of this young man, Joshua, who is a newly ordained leader. And as he's there, he's outside, he's walking along the riverbank, he's awaiting what's going to happen. I'm sure he's thinking to himself, those are big walls. You know, how in the world are we going to do this? I mean, Lord, I believe you, I'm, I'm trusting you, but... Lord, the people are looking at me. What are we going to do? And as he's there pacing by that riverbank, he sees a man clothed in battle armor with his sword drawn. And he's startled as he sees him. And quickly he asks the question. He says, uh, are you for us or, or for our enemies? Who, whose side are you on? And, and I loved reading this to the kids, you know, because the response that came from the man with his sword drawn was, no. Okay, uh, okay, speak Philistine. Uh, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or their side? The guy says, no. But as captain of the Lord's host am I now come. Well, well that, that means you're on our side. No. Well, that means you're on their side. No. See, that's not the issue. See, Joshua, it isn't your side versus their side. It isn't, am I on your side? Am I going to help you? Am I going to be with you? That's not the issue, Joshua. The issue is, are you on my side? See, whose battle is this, Joshua? Who's the one that led you here and put you in this place where you're facing this difficulty, where you're facing this walls, where you're in this dilemma? Who led you here? Whose battle is it? Joshua, it's not about am I on your side or their side. It's about are you on my side? This is my battle. And then God gives to him the most ridiculous set of instructions ever given as a battle plan. And you can read it on your own. It's Joshua chapter 6, you know, and the whole thing. But as I read that to my kids and, you know, we were laughing about, the, you know, how the Lord responded to Joshua there. And we were looking at it through the lens of our own lives. The grace of God is not just for the future of if we'll get into heaven or how we'll get into heaven and how is our salvation secured. But listen, the grace of God is for you right now. The grace of God says to you and to me that it isn't that God is on our side. And yes, we know that God's on our side. He'll never leave us or forsake us. But the real issue is that in grace, we're on his side, which means that it's him that's working through us. Him that's working in us. It's him that is fighting for us. And it's up to us to just simply abide and rest and hope in him. And the grace of God, not just for the future, but for right now, the thing that carries us, the thing that fuels us, the thing that leads us and helps us. May God give us an understanding of his grace and appreciation for the love and the favor that he's given to us so freely, so richly. Let's stand and pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you tonight for the word that we've heard in our ear. We thank you for this revelation of things that are to come, but also of things that are. And we ask that tonight, Lord, you would just 
secure these things within our hearts. That they wouldn't be concepts that we can understand intellectually or points of theology that we can hold religiously. But that, Lord, these would be things written in the very soil of our soul, in the registry of who we are. And I pray that each one of us, Lord, would leave here with a a full understanding of both your severity, of your goodness, and of your grace. And I pray that each one of us here, that we would deal with the question of our eternity. Are we saved for sure? Have we just been playing church, doing duties, hoping to add marks to the good side of the ledger? Or have we given ourselves over to this grace? Have we been bought with the blood? Have we experienced the relationship, the blessedness of your comfort, of your spirit speaking to us, helping us, molding us, shaping us? Oh God, I pray tonight for every person here, I pray that right now, Lord, by your spirit, you would touch each heart. I pray that you would hold up a mirror that we would understand where we stand with you. I pray for those that don't know you here tonight. I pray, Lord, that through the confusion, perhaps, of everything they've heard tonight, they would hear a still, small voice that still yet speaks and says, Come. Come to me. Come to the rivers of life and drink freely. Come to the trees that will never grow old and find your life in me. Come to me and eat and never die. Come and receive. I pray for those, Lord, that tonight they would receive from you that gift of your grace. That they would extend their hand towards heaven and say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Come into my heart. Come into my circumstances. Come into my home. Cleanse me. Wash me and save me. And I pray for any here tonight that know you, but they're discouraged. Their hearts are cast down. They're weary because of the circumstances that they're in. I pray that even as you met with Joshua in that day, that you would speak to them right now that you are the captain of the host of the Lord that the battle belongs to you have mercy on us Lord let us know your goodness and your presence in this place let us leave here in awe of who you are we ask these things in Jesus name